0: What's going on, everybody? This is Jerome Moore, host and creator of Deep Disc Conversations. And firstly, I want to say thank you for all of this support and thank you for exploring the perspectives of social change with me on this platform. I want to encourage you all to like, subscribe, and follow us on YouTube and on your favorite podcast listening platform. And make sure you give us a five star rating if you're loving the Deep Disc Conversations. I appreciate all of the support again. I hope you all enjoy this episode. Danielle Nallis, welcome to the platform How you doing?
1: Good, how are you Jerome? I'm
0: doing good, I'm doing fine um, But you got a lot of stuff going on right now That we're going to get into um, Your candidate for Davidson County District Attorney yes. That's a big deal It's a big deal um, That's a, I would say arguably maybe the most powerful position In our criminal legal system here um, In Davidson County The District Attorney is a powerful person So we're going to talk about power a little bit too How you plan to use it um, but for those who might not know you, Danielle, uh, can you give us a little bit of background about where you're from, uh, just a little bit about who you are, and just the significant points of your uh, your legal track sure. um, for those who just may not know. And just, just may not know. Haven't Googled you yet.
1: <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Um, so my name is P. Danielle Nellis. I am a multi-generational Nashville native, and I count back five, six or so, and it's actually more than that, but I, I stopped tracking. After a while, here in Nashville, and Middle Tennessee, I'm the oldest of four. Um, I have one son and a wonderful husband who has supported me so much in this run. His name is Eric Insignaris. My na- my married name is Insignaris. Uh, my family name is actually Odie, and so uh, that's how people know my family. Okay. Um, I went to... Hume Fog for high school because, you know, Nashville natives, that's what we right. do, Jerome. Yeah, We're yeah, like, yeah. so where'd well, you go to I, school? Yeah, where did, where yeah school all, all those things. To, yeah. So I went to Hume Fogg. And um, I left there and went to Spelman, one of the best decisions of my life, uh, eye-opening experience for me. And... I was a presidential scholar there, so blessed to do that and play basketball. I went to Boston University for law school. It was cold in Boston, uh, like it's cold today. It's like yeah. 27 degrees outside it's today. Rid- it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Um, I graduated on a Sunday, came home on a Monday. I graduated in 09 when the bubble burst on the legal market. Mm. Um, when you say 2009 to lawyers, we all cringe. We're like, ooh, <laughs> that was a bad year, that was a bad year. Um, but I, what it did was put me on a trajectory that I had not expected. Right. And so I came home, took the bar and I started taking appointments, uh, criminal appointments, and it changed my life. I realized that it's something that I thoroughly enjoyed mm-hmm. uh, being in court, arguing on behalf of clients, negotiating. Uh, a lot of my work in under, uh, in law school was negotiation based. And so it was a natural fit. Uh, I really focused on holistically addressing the needs of my client, uh, clients, holistic fence, The phrase didn't really become popular until after I was uh, no longer doing defense, but my thought was always, let's get to the root cause, let's figure out how to not have repeat clients. Um, A lot of people's businesses are built on having repeat clients, but if I did my job, I wasn't going to see that person again. Um, And i have loved to hear so many of the success stories. I went to the DA's office after that on the promise of progressive prosecution. I worked in domestic violence there for a good portion of it, also uh, in criminal court and doing the felony docket in general sessions, Um, learned a lot while I was there, Mm -hmm. Uh, engaged with the community quite a bit, Um, and that's really, that's for me, kind of where my why story happened. Um,
0: Well, But before you got to that part mm -hmm. of the why story, as like, as kids or as young adults, we all say, "Hey, I wanted to go to the NBA, right?" Yes. you know, I just thought I was—I I know I was that good. I just didn't grow anymore. You know, <laughs> things happen. I couldn't—I <laughs> couldn't help that. Um, but mm-hmm. before, what what inspired you to mm. apply to law school? What did, mm. like what what told you or what happened to say I want to to be in law, some type of form of way or fashion?
1: It was not as a kid at all that was a very adult after undergrad decision. Um, when I, when I was growing up, I actually wanted to be a teacher. Um, I tell people I'm an educator by calling and by gifting and I still teach. I'm an adjunct professor at Vanderbilt law Mm -hmm. school. Uh, I teach Sunday school at my church. I'm always doing teaching and training as a part of what I do. I've done diversity, equity and inclusion work, uh, and train and facilitate and do CLEs and all those things. But, I was going to be a teacher, and I was going to grow up, get my bachelor's, my master's, mm-hmm. my EDD, and then I was going to start a school for African American males. Um, because as the oldest, I was the old—I'm the oldest of four. My sister is almost 16 years younger than I am. So, I, mm-hmm. but my brothers, we stair step, and I saw how what they experienced in school was very different than what I experienced oh. in school. Um, and I saw that at a young age, the injustice and inequity in our education system. So I thought that was the trajectory I was going on. Um, I met a city attorney in Atlanta who is now running for governor uh, of Georgia when I was in undergrad and she was the first attorney I'd ever met. Wow. Um, Phenomenal woman, obviously. And my thought on what an attorney did was serve the public. Mm -hmm. That has always been my understanding. I didn't realize that lawyers worked in big firms and made a whole lot of money. Um, Just that wasn't my understanding. The next lawyer that I met after that was the person who I worked for after undergrad, and that was at a human rights nonprofit uh, in Atlanta. And so she was a minister and a lawyer and the executive director of a nonprofit that worked on educating people Mm -hmm. around human rights. um, And the... um, you know, UN treaties. Right. And so I'm a woman of God, believe that God gives us direction, gives us purpose. And in that year after undergrad, you know, prayerfully considering, right. um, went to law school to do international education policy, because I've always believed that people educate their their kids know how to educate their kids. Right. And we often go in from a top-down perspective mm-hmm. and say, well, I know how to do education, so you should educate this way. Right, And it's the same with our criminal justice system. Right. you know, People who are most impacted by our criminal justice system often don't have their voices heard and elevated in a way that um, is authentic, right? So we say right. we listen to people, but then we really don't. Um, but those are the people whose voices we most need to hear because they have the lived experience, right. um, and that's part of why I'm I'm running. Like right. I have the lived experience, uh, right. which we can talk about my story later. Yeah. But, but that y- is but, that is how I ended up here. But no, I still think <laughs> like
0: you still because especially when you talk about black males in school, a lot of times when you do see those inequities or you doesn't you don't see that same care in mm-hmm. um, uh, nurture that's how you get the school-to-prison pipeline, right? Which directly Mm
1: -hmm.
0: can be affected in a good or bad way by the DA's office, right? Absolutely. Um, Whether it's juvenile or or adults, right? Um, Black males, right? But we're going to get into that (laughs) for sure. Um, But I just think that's a, like... Ironic, like coincidence in itself. Like, hey, you 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 wanted to start a school mm-hmm. specifically black males, but like, hey, this is still on the back end, right? You don't want to see him on the back end, yeah. but like on the back end, if you don't get that that right work care in school, mm-hmm. it
1: could. I don't think it's a coincidence at all. Um, I believe that our whole lives prepare us for our purpose, mm. and so having that understanding personally. Uh, you know, and and calling personally, coupled with, um, you know, going, having an education background in undergrad, going through law school thinking I'm going to do education and policy, um, and then coming out and seeing really firsthand, as I'm working with clients and their families, the impact of, you know, failed education systems and the inequities in our education systems and how that then has an interplay with our criminal justice system. I right. don't think that was an accident at right. all, and it makes me really uniquely qualified to do this work.
0: You just gave me a new question I want to ask mm-hmm. because um, you, you 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 see this or you notice this or you hear this a lot in um, some of our top most powerful uh, elected officials in this state, specifically. Um, Being a godly man or godly woman Right Um, Our governor (laughs) Says he's a godly man Mm -hmm. A faith based man Right Some would argue his decisions that he's made for this state Are not so godly Um, Some would argue With that So if elected DA And being a godly woman How does that play a part in the decisions And the power that you will hold for here in Davidson County in our criminal uh, legal system?
1: Absolutely. So um, I'm gonna take it back to undergrad to kind of answer that question. The motto for Spelman is our whole school for Christ. Mm -hmm. But obviously we have people from every walk of life and every background. And while I was there, I was an ambassador, so I gave all the tours. And people often ask, well, are you all gonna make me try and believe something? Are you gonna make me try and live a certain way? And that is not, what being a woman of faith is about or what the school is about. So as a woman of faith, I understand that I have to love my neighbor Mm -hmm. as myself. Right. And uh, I think the saying is justice. love justice is love in public or and forgive me if I'm stating that wrong. But we walk out the the tenets of our faith, the um, faith, hope, love. Right. All those fruits of the Holy Spirit that we learn about in the Bible. If you don't live them, if you don't walk them out, then you can say that you're whatever, Mm -hmm. but it's about your actions and what that looks like in public. So that's what that means to me. It's not to, you know, bear down on somebody and make them try and believe what I believe, but it's for me to live out those beliefs each and every day in my work and in my actions.
0: Actions, I think is a crucial word. Mm -hmm what actions didn't you see in our current DA administration's office that said hey we need a change Mm. hey we hey i i it's it's davidson county needs somebody like me as da Mm -hmm. to implement those changes and implement the actions that are not being implemented in our current uh, da administration
1: yeah great question um You know, I went there on the promise of progressive prosecution, thinking we were going to be able to do prosecution differently. Um, I didn't even know our current DA before I interviewed with him. We had maybe met once in passing, but there were people who knew me, knew my practice, knew my care for my clients who said, you need to apply because this is going to be a good fit for you. In 2017, we had that big uptick in youth violence and juvenile violence. And as I've told you, I taught teen Sunday school, and of those kids who were killed, five of them were mine. It wasn't um, you know, somebody else's kids down the street or some statistic or just some news story. I knew them. I knew what they wanted to do with their lives. I knew what their hopes were. I knew you know, so much about their lives and their families. And it was in that year, that, that straw that broke the camel's back, that I realized that we could do better, and we deserve better, and what we were doing was not what was promised. We weren't moving the conversation forward. We weren't Mm -hmm. proactively implementing programs and principles. We weren't actively reaching out to community, except for to show up and say, okay, well, we're here for you, but that wasn't really the case. And so what I did, because I've never wanted to just be like, oh, there's a problem, let's not fix it. Um, We're all about fixing the problems and being solution-oriented forward-thinking. I presented it to our DA, mm-hmm. hour long presentation, PowerPoint and everything. And it was based on community focused uh, engagement, hearing from the community. It was about becoming transparent and accessible to the community we were supposed to serve. It was about elevating the voices of moral authority in our community and saying, you know, such and such is doing this work over here. How do we partner with them? Because we don't have to recreate the wheel. We don't have to be in control of everything. We have to identify the resources, identify the partners, and work together to come up with solutions, and it was rejected. Hmm. It was rejected because we didn't have enough money to do it, right? Right? Right. And so the things that I was saying need to be done didn't require resources from the district attorney's office. Mm -hmm. It required working in community to identify our collective resources so that we could build a safer and stronger Nashville. And um, it was at that point that I started asking around and saying, you know, how do we do this? How can I be this person? Because this is what we have to do. For the sake of our kids, for the sake of our family, for the sake of our communities. Because what we were doing and what right. we still are doing is not working for any of us.
0: Youth is a big thing, right? You, the youth huge um, is our future, right? Absolutely. We like to use that term a, a lot. However, sometimes our criminal legal system don't treat our youth as if they are the future, right? Yep. Um, if elected da right um how would you navigate juvenile justice right Mm -hmm. around um wraparound services Mm -hmm. um around restorative justice Mm -hmm. um and kind of going back to what you said early like i don't making sure like i don't see you again right or you don't have to be here again in any type of way form or fashion um here in nashville and davidson Mm -hmm. county and i love what um our current uh, juvenile court judge Sheila Calloway said it was like you know arresting youth is not the answer, right? And so, um, if elected DA, what is what is your answer um, to juvenile justice here in Nashville, other than just hey, like yeah, we're gonna just throw the book at them and you know lock them up and you know lock them back up if they come around again and don't give those wraparound services which you mentioned in your policy document. Yeah.
1: So when you're saying you know lock them up. Throw away the key. You're talking punishment.
0: Pun- you're right. Exactly.
1: And taking a step back from just juveniles, the question we have to ask for every case is accountability. Mm. So it's not just how do we punish a person because they've done something. It's how do we hold them accountable and work towards um, them never doing that again. Because that's what accountability is. If right. I take responsibility for something, exactly. I've accepted my mistakes and I'm not going to do it again. Mm-hmm. But we do that for the sake of the victims and the defendants right. and the community as a whole. Right. So going back to your specific question though, Judge Calloway is phenomenal. <laughs> Love her, she's amazing. Uh, I think what she's doing in juvenile court is exactly what we have to do, expand and replicate for adults. And so um, I'm hoping she will be fully funded in all of her efforts uh, moving forward so that she can really treat the child and the child as a part of a unit, Mm -hmm. right? We cannot see children as the only actor in an incident, because if I have a 14 year old who's committing some violent crime, I have to look and see how we as adults in a community have failed that child hmm. because there's nothing about a 14-year-old that says that's what I really want to be doing or I have a full understanding of the choices that I'm making at in this moment. We know right. that when people, you know, folks come in contact with the criminal justice system between that 14 and 25 age range, they're more likely to stay in the system. And so right. if we can really address the needs of people, uh, youth, young adults as they're coming in contact with the criminal justice system identify the root cause, right? Identify whatever trauma they may have experienced, right? Identify the needs and the resources that they lack and um, address those. Mm -hmm. Then we're less likely to see them again. And we also help heal their family unit, make them whole. We help heal our community. We make sure that they're not victim, people being victimized over and over. Right. Um, So yeah, I agree with what Judge Calloway is doing. I think we have to expand the restorative justice program. I know there's work happening in juvenile court uh, in that way. I think we have to expand our restorative justice program into adult courts. And what Mm -hmm. that looks like for me is a neighborhood courts model. Um, but I also think we have to make restoration and rehabilitation and restorative justice the ethos. Right. It can't just be, okay, well, I have a case, so maybe I'll divert it. It's asking that question right. for every case. What is accountability? What does harm reduction and healing look like?
0: And when I look at your policy mm-hmm. uh, policy book, and I would encourage people to, to definitely go read it um, to understand more of what uh, Danielle's platform is, one of the things I've I seen that I really liked, um, and I, I guess it was kind of new to me, right, mm-hmm. is uh, one of the things you wanted to do is support the efforts to increase the age of juvenile siblings from 18 to 25, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, what would that do? What does that mean? Um, and the impact that that would have for, essentially, like, even though you're 18, you're an adult, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're legally an adult. You're, st- you're a young adult, and you know, and...
1: You're legally, legally an adult. adult. You're legally
0: an adult, but <laughs> that 18 to 25, right, is mm-hmm. is a, is a, is a, is, a, is an important age where you know we still make some you know unadoidish, unadultish, un-adult-ish um, decisions, mm-hmm. um, and still very young and, and naive and make mistakes. So, and the would, reason we do it yeah. is
1: because our prefrontal cortex is not fully developed. Mm. Our brain science tells us that our decision making capabilities are not fully formed. At 18, at 19, at 20. Uh, And if we try and treat people uh, in a way that that they, er, er, if we try and treat an 18-year-old the way we treat a Mm 30-year-old, we're doing a disservice to that individual, right? Mm -hmm. We have to put people first and understand the people in the stages that they are in. Um, So what that looks like for me, that 18 to 25, is a very specific focus on Diverting them and supporting them and addressing their needs and partnership with uh, community organizations, right? And you know, when we talk 18 to 25, I tell people, I just want you to remember the dumbest thing you did in college if you went right. to college yeah. folks got stories we don't need to say them some of them are illegal right, um, for sure <laughs> they just didn't get caught growth
0: uh, is amazing oh yes yes <laughs>
1: for the growth right so you look back on that time but so often in the positions of power and the positions of prosecution and from from the judge's perspectives they're looking at that person because they are now in the adult system mm-hmm. as adults but if we could just keep people um, in you know keep keeping people's minds how they were and the decisions they were making maybe we can uh uh show more care right show more concern for those people but I, I do think it is a focus on 18 to 25 year olds i know judge bell has a diversionary court for 18 to 30 so i think we need to either uh expand or rework that so that we are treating youth as youth right um yeah policing mm-hmm.
0: right um another hot topic around the country i would say I, maybe even around the world right um one of the words that come up around policing um, recently is defund the police uh, what are your thoughts about that and what does that mean to you from your perspective
1: yeah so i uh, have friends who are abolitionists and i tell folks i i am not there right i'm mm-hmm. that is not my stance on police but i think the conversation is, what do we want officers to really be doing and what do we want to fund as a community? Mm-hmm. And so I give the example, if a crime happens and it requires fingerprinting and collection of evidence, I need a highly trained group of individuals to do that, otherwise I cannot have it, I cannot use any of it as, um, as evidence in court to pursue justice for a victim. Right. So I need officers to do that. Mm -hmm. But I don't need three agencies to show up on I-65 and kill a man. Right. I I don't need you to show up to a mental health crisis Mm -hmm. like that. And so to me, that's what this conversation is, is how do we want to. Uh, allocate community funds, right, Mm -hmm. or taxpayer dollars or community funds to the police force as a tool for public safety. Right. And so, um, public safety, I think we need to broaden out our conversation to consider tools of public safety. Right. Public safety, I think, can be accomplished in many, many ways Mm -hmm. by investment in people, right? Right. Crime is a resource problem. It was said recently at a... Um, council meeting by Councilwoman Hurt and we know that crime right. is a resource problem and so how are we investing our resources what tools are we using to further public safety as a collective and I think it's important to recognize that the work that officers do right, right? I've had crazy cases on both defense side and prosecution side traumatic cases where officers are the first ones on the scene to show up the First ones to um, see gruesome mm-hmm. situations, and then our expectation of police is you go back out and you deal with the next case, right. And that's problematic as well, right? So respecting the work of the that people are doing, the good work people are doing, but at the same time knowing that there are uh, historic and systemic injustices with policing overall. So right. um, I think what people miss, maybe the way to say this is. People miss the individual, miss the separation of individual from system. Right. So we have to make sure that we are addressing the systemic injustices right. of policing, but we have to respect individuals in the work that mm-hmm. they do. And I think right. there is a, a balance there that has to be struck.
0: Yeah, and, and, and I try to make sure I also articulate that balance. I'm not, I don't believe personally that all police officers are bad officers. Mm-hmm. The system itself is different, right? Um, and you know, there's officers that perpetuate some of the, the negative impact that the, the system puts out there. But um, you know, I don't, I don't believe our officers are bad. But it is a systemic issue more than a personal, individual police officer issue. Absolutely. Um, but I think, I think, I think that it help if more people communicated that way. Even when speaking to officers, like, hey, I'm not mad at you. But the system (laughs) that you're that you're working for is what i'm upset about and let's have a conversation about that
1: and recognizing the generational trauma of that system Mm -hmm. um so part of my personal story is my grandfather was beaten by police Mm. my father was harassed by police and one evening when i was a defense attorney my brothers are driving down clarksville highway headlight out right shouldn't have uh you know should have gotten the headlight fixed recognize that officers follow them and instead of stopping on a dark road um, and in w- that area was particularly dark they drove less than a mile got to the bottom of the driveway and called their attorney sister on the way to make sure there was at least a witness mm. should anything happen right. and so we have to look at how that has impacted right. the system of policing has impacted generations for sure um and and not try and make that some pithy, well, that was then, this is now. No, that's it's not. Right. That's very much a, a real and lived experience. And it is, if we don't address it, it right. is detrimental to the community, it's detrimental to officers, right. uh, and it will not help us move the conversation forward if we just ignore it.
0: You, you brought up a um, situation on IC survivors just recently happened here in Nashville that led to the death of a man who was suffering from a mental health crisis. Um, if elected DA, um, how do you plan to handle um a fatal use of force accident by police? Um, and i am a to purpose it with, you know, a lot of times from a community standpoint, it seems like police get a different type of privilege in the courtroom that everyday community members don't get. Um, and so how do you be more transparent about their process and and I guess equitable, make sure it's an equitable process regardless of the uniform Mm -hmm. that whether I'm a janitor, nurse, school teacher or police officer, have one going into a courtroom as USDA.
1: Yeah, so I think everyone has to be accountable for their actions. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I've told officers that. There is nobody who is an exception to the law. Mm -hmm. But I will say their job Often brings them in contact with situations where there is additional or there may be force used against them um, I think we take it a case-by-case case basis I don't think we insulate officers because they are officers I think there are some people who would like to see that happen but we review each situation and treat the case uh, if the facts supported as as the facts present, right? And we follow the law in that area. Um, Some other things kind of that are moving in Nashville, as you well know, you have a restructuring and addressing of some of these issues internally with uh, the new chief. Mm-hmm. You have the Community Oversight Board mm-hmm. really gaining, um, getting its legs under it, I think, despite um, the issues that it faced to start. M- many,
0: many struggles. <laughs>
1: many, many struggles <laughs> yeah. over many, many generations, actually. Right. Um, not just the most recent iteration. So I absolutely support right. the work of the Community Oversight Board. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want to be very careful. You know, the DA does not control police. Right. And I think there is a narrative out there that the DA is absolutely responsible for the training and control of officers. The DA's office represents the state of Tennessee and here in Davidson County, it represents the people of Davidson County. And so the DA's office has to be independent of officers, though there is a partnership and you work together because they are out there and they are the first responders. They are getting the evidence. They are doing the work of addressing the crimes first it cannot be a um, one in the same situation. Mm -hmm. And that's best for not only the office, the DA's office, but it's what's best for the officers. Um, So I think we have to be very careful about the relationship so that people can trust the cases and the outcomes. Um, I think what we see in some other offices to maintain that balance is the use of what's called a Brady List. So where you have an officer who is consistently uh, the bad apple, Mm -hmm. right? Doing bad work, the office takes note so that when we see that person's name come across, you're aware and you you dig a little deeper. Um, You make sure that you know that there have been some issues in the past. Um, So that's, you know, I think there are things that can maintain the independence of office without damaging the relationship between the office and officers, because there is a bit of a codependence right. there, um, and but without also without damaging the community that it that office is meant to serve, which is what's most important in this conversation.
0: Jail and prison is pretty overcrowded, mm-hmm. right? Um, especially when it comes to um, Black and Brown folks, you know, disproportionately overcrowded. If elected D.A. for Davidson County, what are some of your goals in reducing um, the prison population, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, here in in, in Nashville, Davidson County, but also to be Tennessee, essentially?
1: In Tennessee, um, I forget the exact statistic. I should have looked this up before I came. But Tennessee imprisons more people than many Western nations.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. we're, we're yeah, like we're It's like number
1: 8 or something. Yeah. Uh, in the world. Just let that it. in right. the world.
0: Well, that that tends to happen when, you know, you have like a zip code that has like the highest incarceration rate, 37208. Yeah, right. so and that, I grew
1: up between 37208 and 37218. So this is very much a part of my life. Right. The best answer to keeping people out of jail is n- diverting them from the criminal justice system in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so what that looks like in my policy platform is, of course, the use of neighborhood courts, right, where you're elevating the voices of moral authority in mm-hmm. the community. And we've seen it work in other cities. There's lots of models out there that are very effective. Um, so keeping people from the traditional criminal justice process. right to actually address the underlying issue and meet the needs of community Mm -hmm. is hugely important. So through that, we're able to decrease the number of defendants and victims overall. So that is one. But I think we also have to move upstream to prevention and identifying the set of conditions that are more likely to bring people in contact with the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. The DA cannot fix everything. It's not the role of the district attorney but i think it is one of the most important roles in changing the policy and narrative around what we are looking to do when we are holding people accountable so part of my plan is to gather the community stakeholders to bring the community stakeholders to the table and always have an open door to hear from people because in doing that we identify uh, the problems We identified the resources available to address those problems mm-hmm. and to align those resources to meet the needs of victims, defendants in the community as a whole. On this campaign trail, I've been so amazed at the work that people are doing, but because criminal justice lives in a silo, mm-hmm. often we only stay in our courthouse instead of getting out into community and in the neighbors, neighborhoods that we're supposed to serve. We don't even know of the many, many programs that are out there that are serving people and meeting those resource deficiency needs, right? right? Housing and food and education and childcare and all of those things. So I think we have to bring the stakeholders to the table, identify and align the resources to address the problems upstream.
0: Right. Trying to look at some stats. You're fine. Yeah, I was like, "Hey, what's yeah, I, yeah." No, I'm so. trying to look up some stats. But. Well,
1: and I think we don't really have good national stats. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say that on a couple of levels. Uh, our city has grown exponentially, right? right? Amazing growth. We grew up here, you and right. I.
0: Right. For better, um, or for worse. <laughs> for better, for
1: better or for worse. Um, but. I think for better, right? right? Because we have a perspective that yeah. others don't have about our city, right? Um, and so we grew up here, and we've seen all these hundreds of people move in every week. And on the backside of that is displacement, right? right? Increased homeless pop—you know, increased populations of right. uh, people who are unhoused or experiencing mm-hmm. homelessness, uh, food insecurity, which has been an issue in many areas for years, right. but even more so now and so we're seeing the backside of that growth and we have not allocated the resources or identified the resources to address the issues that our own growth has caused Mm -hmm. Um, so that's also part of what i really think we need to be doing what i would like to do by bringing the stakeholders to the table Um, and on the other side of that data and transparency right we don't have outcomes in the criminal justice system uh, and I know that sounds like a very strained statement to make, but we have a lot of inputs. You got uh, your ComStat reports that your officers do, mm-hmm. We know arrests. we know where their arrests take place, We know how many cases are going through the system. We have no clue what the outcomes are right. by demographic, we have no clue what the outcomes are uh, by judge, by ADA, right. which I think is even more important right. um, because if as the DA, I don't get to control anybody else, right right? except for the office right. and what happens in the office and the policy of the office. But if I have no clue what people are doing in the office except for go, you know go right. do good work right. is is the marching order. But if I don't know how that good work manifests or mm. or whatever, I can't address any of the biases. Right. I can't address any of the disparities. Right. I can't do it because I don't know. And so we've got to get to a place where we know when we have those numbers. That's hugely important. And then, because my background is in training and education, I believe I'm uniquely equipped to take that data and implement the changes that need to be implemented in the office. And I say that not as a, you know, there are really good people in the office Mm -hmm. doing really good work the best they can. but there's no consistent set of principles, there's no consistent guidance, and we have to have that. We have to shift the culture in the office so that it's not toxic, so that people know that they are supported in their work. I think we saw that with Judge Calloway. When she came in and she changed the way, she says, you know, in order to take care of the kids, I had to also take care of every person that was coming in contact with the kids. Right. It's the same with cases, going through the courts. In order to take care of these cases and meet community needs, mm-hmm. I've got to take care of the people who are in the office as well and make sure people are functioning within their best skill set.
0: Mm-hmm. Another thing that is unique about Nashville is our immigrant and refugee population, right? Um, and, and their communities, right? Um, and it can be very easy for many Nasvillians to be in our own community bubble because, like, even though we're diverse, I would say we're diversely segregated, right? As DA, that's something you can't be, right? You have to be able to serve the needs of all community members, mm-hmm. um, and specifically in this case, our immigrant and refugees. Um, many of them have language barriers, which you know is a fight for you know language justice. Um, many of them feel feel uh, fear the um, feel the fear of um, deportation yep. if going to law enforcement or trying to you know feel like they they've been treated unjustly mm-hmm. but just because of the that fear they have and maybe a narrative or a family member experience something trying mm-hmm. to go to court trying to reach out to law enforcement they tend not to do so. Um, if elected DA, how do you plan to build that trust? Mm-hmm. to combat their fear with our immigrant and refugee community where they can be served in a just and equitable way from our criminal legal system?
1: Absolutely. Great, great question. Um, so I, there's a couple, couple of, answers to that okay. so there are two hires that i think have to happen immediately uh the first is a criminologist who's a statistician that really deals with all of those inputs and data that i talked about so mm-hmm. that we could gather them the second is an immigration specialist mm-hmm. because if we're going to talk about expanding options for accountability we have to understand the interplay of immigration law, which is complex, changes every administration, changes every week sometimes, Um, and is a very unique area of law that general, you know, even those of us who are in this criminal law world, we just do not deal with regularly. And when we do, we feel very hamstrung in the options available, along with all of those, um, let's see how to say this, all those stereotypes Mm -hmm. that come with it right so immigrant victims are only here so they can get a u visa that's why they're bringing charges right so we've heard these things in court and it's horrible and inaccurate Um, we lack cultural competency Mm -hmm. generally in the criminal justice system when dealing with immigrant and refugee populations and understanding um you know gender dynamics Mm -hmm. uh and so we've got to get specific training on those areas and also it cannot be incumbent upon the one or two people who are uh, who are either immigrants or first generation or speak a specific language uh, in the office to handle it. It has to be something that everybody is aware of mm-hmm. and moving towards a uh, just resolution that is both accountable within the context of the law and culture right right and reduces the harm, the likelihood of it happening again, uh, and, and fosters you know, healing in the community. And so those are my you know, initial thoughts. But it is a, um, if we do not intentionally work mm-hmm. to address those deficits that you have stated, then we're gonna keep having the same issues right. that we have. And of course language, my, my uh, degree in undergrad was Spanish. And so I, I love language, I think right. it is beautiful, and we've got to expand the resources to meet the needs of those who speak other languages. And right. we just, we don't have a lot of court resources, but we have a community of resources. Right. And so if we just tap into those communities, I think we're gonna be much better off.
0: And, and I, I, I'm glad you said that because there's like a plethora of, of community organizations that, you know, that, that that cater specifically to a particular um uh, immigrant uh, mm-hmm. community, whether it's mm-hmm. Kurdish, whether it's um, our Asian Indian community, whether it's our Latinx community,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Vietnamese, Japanese, Chinese—it's it's, a—it's a plethora, yeah. right? And they all have like their own community organizations and services trying to help build power in their community. Mm-hmm. And you know, why shouldn't the D.A.'s office not be tapped into that, or any of our systems be tapped into that if there's see there's a need or a void or something that could better serve? Um, their community that they don't particularly have yet
1: absolutely and in partnership right and not in, in a yeah. um top down like you're gonna do it my way but right. what can i learn from you exactly. come to the table have this conversation with me so we can all be better off together right
0: i i, I said this earlier um the da is a very powerful position mm-hmm. um i believe the most powerful person in our criminal legal system um, and can, and as you mentioned, maybe don't control all of the facets like policing and other things um, in, in our legal system that, or in things that have residual effects mm-hmm. that happen in our legal system, but, you know, have a very powerful voice and influence, right? There, have, there are a lot of systemic issues, barriers, racially, um, issues in our criminal legal system historically and currently mm-hmm. as a black woman right um which is a different experience than even a black man right mm-hmm. and if elected you would be the first woman the first black woman first black person um uh, many first since, since Andrew Jackson <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah you know since Andrew Jackson. Mm-hmm. Um as DA for Davidson County, how can you use all of those many first and facets uh to really speak out in 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 a address things that you you personally can't change, but you can address them and they will come with a lot of weight if you address the systemic issues in our criminal legal system? If you address uh maybe a a a tool that wants to be implemented that has systemic issues or not equitable or is going to affect other communities differently mm-hmm. right how do you how do you plan on using your voice in that way because um, i don't know if we see it a lot or as much as we should to or people just calling it out right because relationships and things like that could be a part of it but how do you plan on using your voice and your power to call those things out what is is at General Assembly, the legis- state legislature? Like, it's many there will be many opportunities, right, mm-hmm. for you to call those things out. Do you plan on calling those things out? How do you plan on doing that, right? Um, and let's get that on the record.
1: On the record, yes. <laughs> <laughs> on the record, yes. Um, I think that is what makes, one of the things that makes me so different from my opponents. Uh, not just that I am black and that I am woman, but my lived experience mm-hmm informs my decision making and so you know i told you my wife's story we lost my babies my Sunday school babies Mm -hmm. my father-in-law who was a Venezuelan immigrant was murdered six months after we got married and what the officer said to me was said to us in their investigation with a very blurry video is well we think it was a 510 African American male Mm. Well, it happened on Nolensville Road, mm. and my complexion on Nolensville Road could be anybody from anywhere, and so mm. that tells me because of because I know because I'm aware of our diversity because I'm aware of our communities mm-hmm. that there may be a flaw there, and that's right. something that I understand. Right. Um, had, like I told you, the story of my father and my grandfather and my brothers—that's right. a lived experience of being. Yeah. You know, so I have this lived experience of being both victim of systemic injustice as well as a victim of crime, and that is different from my opponents. I've right. worked in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space throughout my legal career in different facets, and so I understand what it is to be the only one in a room, right. um, to have to be the voice, and so and it's something I've always taken on. In law school, there were uh, eight Black students in my class of two hundred and seventy, and I was the president of our Balsa chapter and of the National Balsa, which is Black Law Students Association. Um, so, and and was awarded for building a community and engaging our alumni community to meet the needs of the students there. Right. And so, I've always been about being that voice for our right. community, but. As a district attorney, I cannot be the only voice. Mm. And what is important to me is to elevate the voices of moral authority in our community, to hear from community, and as we started out to Go to those who have been most impacted right. by those systemic issues of racism, sexism, homophobia, right? all of them, and pull those voices in and pull those people in to help change the way we do criminal justice, to right. reimagine our criminal justice system. Because right. I don't have all the answers. Right. No one person has all the answers, right. but together we can come up with answers and solutions to fix the problems that we're facing.
0: Our council members, and this is going to the, the your, your power, your voice. Our council members here um, in Davidson County, Nashville, just the majority of them just voted to implement license plate readers, LPRs, for a six month pilot um, here in Nashville. There were around 15 to 20 organizations, including the COB, Community Oversight Board, that strongly um, suggested our council members do not implement this bill yet this mm-hmm. tool didn't have enough guardrails around it and maybe disproportionately affecting people of color
1: mm-hmm.
0: more than others uh, especially how our inner how our streets and demographic is made up where those LPRs be posted mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on LPRs mm-hmm. uh, let me get that first yeah what are your thoughts on LPRs? <laughs> Let me get that. Let me get that.
1: We can talk about the council meeting that I was watching. (laughs) What
0: what, what are your your thoughts on that tool? Right. Yeah.
1: Um, So I think you've said the word that is most important here. mm -hmm. LPRs are a tool Mm -hmm. for public safety. That's how they're being labeled and used. Um, And so I think the question is, what tools do we want as a community to help ensure public safety? I cannot say that the bill written as it is now is the best tool. Right. And I think there's also a very dangerous narrative coming out that if you're anti-LPR, then you are anti-police. And that is not mm-hmm. the same conversation. Okay.
0: I'm going to pause you right there. Okay. And I think you I think you worded that perfectly, as written, right? Because I think that's what all those organizations and things say, hey, as it is now, like, like we don't think this is ready to go, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If elected DA, and let's say if you was the DA at that current moment, right? Mm-hmm. How would you have used your voice in that particular situation? Because, again, I think if our DA comes out, comes out and says something about sure. that, I think that changes the outcome of that bill. Yeah.
1: Um, I think I say just what I said to you now, hmm. which is, as written, this tool has too many potential downfalls mm. that outweigh the potential benefits. And I think it was Councilman Sledge who said it, um, and it really hit home for me. So like I said, my, my father-in-law immigrated from Venezuela, and there was some issue in my husband's youth, and he told me about this when we were dating, and. Um, where my father-in-law was taken to Louisiana. And so I think Councilman Sledge said, you know, if it's going to impact one family where they have a family member ripped out of their home in the middle of the night and their lives change forever. And that hit home for me Mm. because my husband told the story of he and his brother and his mother driving through the night to Louisiana to testify on his father's behalf so that he could stay here. Wow. And he was able to stay here uh, before he was murdered. Uh, yeah, he was a great guy, made the best arepas ever. Uh, we had so <laughs> much fun together. Um, but that hit home for me. Mm-hmm. If we have a tool that will cause more harm to families and specific populations, right. then we need to be more careful in our implementation of the tool. So And in all these conversations, I'm reminded of, uh, I think it's called the law of the instrument or law of the hammer, in that if if the only tool you have in your toolbox is a hammer, then you tend to see every problem as a nail. Mm -hmm. And so we've got to expand our toolbox. We've got to expand our toolbox beyond the traditional, beyond the status quo, beyond the normal to see that we can implement different tools to foster and ensure public safety. Even the role of the DA, the criminal justice system, is a tool Mm -hmm. in a larger conversation about public safety. We know that criminal behavior is often trauma response. Poverty is trauma. And so if we are addressing poverty or other conditions that bring people in contact, or or make it more likely that they participate in criminal behavior, Mm then we are fostering community safety and public safety without your traditional tool of a criminal justice system or criminal justice process through the courts. Um, so that really, we need to expand our conversation. We've got to come from behind our battle lines. I think that's what I saw right. in the uh, the conversation with, um, in the debate
0: right.
1: with the councils. People got behind their lines right. and weren't hearing each other, uh, hearing the hurt, hearing the potential for harm. Um, that was there, but also hearing the deep desire to create a safer city uh, for all of us, or the fears that people are experiencing regarding being safe in our city. And so we've got to get behind, our, get from behind our battle lines and come to the table and really have these conversations together in a way that is solutions focused and forward focusing, um, keeping in mind that we want to reduce harm mm-hmm. to community, reduce harm to people. So.
0: So during our conversation I've been saying criminal legal system Mm -hmm. You've been saying criminal justice system Some people say criminal punishment system So what does justice look like to you? And what is justice to you?
1: I love that question. Uh, I have a six-year-old, Okay. and we were driving down Barley Parkway going somewhere, and he is full throttle on this campaign, right? My baby goes with me to different places, <laughs> and he pipes up from the back seat one day, and he says, Mommy, why is justice so important to you? And, oh, my heart fluttered, first and foremost, that he would see it and know that that is what we're working towards. Um, but justice is, to me, a community that is whole right, a community that is healed. And even when harm happens, right, where there is um, criminal behavior that takes place, there is a, ju- a system in place that holds accountable, that prevents that from happening again, and not just because somebody got thrown in jail, but truly because we work through whatever that issue was. Right. People are not afraid, right? People experience support, people experience healing, uh, that is that is what our justice system should look like and what just being just is to me. Like the quote I said earlier that I'm probably paraphrasing. Um, you know, justice is love in public, right? Right. right. I know that sounds very touchy feely, but you know, <laughs> no. we have to have these really aspirational goals to right. shoot no. towards.
0: Yeah. No, like that's that's how that's how change is created, mm-hmm. right? You gotta think of the unthinkable.
1: Mm-hmm. To reimagine you, yeah. what people think is impossible, what our status quo has told us for ge- generations is impossible. And that's what I'm trying to do.
0: What role do you believe the district attorney has in criminal justice reform, mm-hmm. reimagining, mm-hmm. reconstructing?
1: It is the most important position in reimagining the criminal justice system, and I say that not to belittle anybody else that is participating in this process. Every case that is charged comes through the office of the district attorney. Mm -hmm. Some of them go to one judge, two judge, three judge. No judge sees all of the cases, but the DA's office for state level crimes sees every case that is charged. If our community cannot trust that justice will occur, that accountability will happen, mm-hmm. then they will be less likely to report. Right. Right. I've heard and seen the frustration of people who are like, I've called and nothing happens." Right. Right. They're less likely to believe that there is accountability. One of the issues with our criminal justice system is that the process of holding somebody accountable is so far removed from the incident Mm -hmm. that there is no deterrent effect which is what part of what the criminal justice system is for you're supposed to be able to deter crimes but if you know a case happens and then two three years down the road maybe something happens in a closed-off courtroom people don't know that there was any deterrence that occurred Um, so I so I think the DA is the most important that role is the most important in changing the way we do criminal justice because the DA sets the policy internally mm-hmm. Should be functioning on principle particularly through training uh, of the ADAs and holding them accountable And the DA also has a responsibility of setting the table Because if you're responsible for every case you should be involved you should be you should involve the entire community in finding those resources and determining kind of the the direction that we're going. Um, And when we have an effective criminal justice process for cases that are brought to the DA's office, I think we are more likely to um, be able to address those cases that are unresolved outside of uh, those that have come to the... um, to the DA's office, I theorize sometimes because my father-in-law's case is unresolved, uh, I theorize that maybe it was somebody who was concerned about immigration implications. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was somebody who was concerned about their safety and being able to be safe if they reported what they saw, right? right? I think there's all those things that keep people from um, assisting the community and pursuing justice. because. The system has not proven itself to be trustworthy, mm. and so restoring trust in the system is very important. And I think that is a responsible responsibility of the district attorney.
0: Eight years is a long time. Oh yes, like it's you a can, generation. You work. might as well, yeah. You might yeah. as well say ten. You might as well round it on up. A good decade. Right? You might as well round it on up.
1: Yeah.
0: What does eight years, the future of Nashville, essentially right, look like as Danielle? Nallis as district attorney here in Nashville?
1: That's such a good question. Um, And I love that you pointed out that it is eight years and almost a decade, because in, in those eight years, you impact a generation. Right. What it looks like for me is informed policy-making and program implementation based on principles and in process with community engaged community it looks like transparency and being open to the community that Mm -hmm. we are called to serve that we are elected to serve it looks like an office that is not about elevating my personal profile but elevating those in the community who are doing the work and doing it together right right? we have to do this together criminal justice if we do not make a change at this moment right will become the weak link in our growing city businesses consider is a city safe before they move there and yes we have enticed many businesses here uh, to invest in our community but will that continue if we cannot ensure that the city is safe it looks like individuals not experiencing fear walking to their car because the city is safe it looks Mm -hmm. like a homicide rate that is not tripled in an eight-year period, but has indeed gone down. And there are other factors as to why that has happened, not just the policies of the district attorney. Um, It looks like victims' voices actually being valued and elevated. Right now we tell victims you can have uh, jail, probation, or nothing. And when we ask victims what they really want, they want to make sure it never happens to anybody else. And so Mm -hmm. we expand the options for accountability. we can make sure victims' voices are actually heard. It looks drastically different than what it looks like now. It looks like um, equitable treatment of people as they're coming in contact with the criminal justice system. It it just looks so different than what we are doing right now because what we're doing right now is what we have done for generations upon generations. And that is the option that's on the ballot on May 3rd and early voting April 13th is do we want to... Reimagine our criminal justice system in a way that meets all of our needs, mm-hmm. or do we want to keep doing the same thing that we've always done? So,
0: uh, lastly, mm-hmm. which I think is, is is equally as important. Anything that we just talked about is how can people support you?
1: Yeah, right. Is. How can they Great donate? Question. Campaign. <laughs> sure. We
0: understand. We know that these things take takes money. They just don't run off of. It's just air, right? Mm-hmm. So, how mm-hmm. can people? One, reach out to you, find more information about your policy, your download your policy book, mm-hmm. and like donate anything else that you might want to add how people can you know stay tapped in with you.
1: Sure. So my website is Nellis4Nashville.com. That's N as in Nancy, E-L-L-I-S 4-F-O-R Nashville.com. So you can donate there. Uh, we are accepting all donations up to $1,600 per individual. But we are a people-powered um campaign. And so we, our average donor is less than my opponents, but we have so many donors Mm -hmm. and people are invested. So keep investing. Uh, There's a sponsor assign link on there. You all seen the giant signs everywhere. Um, So click there. You can sponsor a sign, share Facebook, Instagram on Facebook. I am Danielle for DA, Uh, Nellis for Nashville on Instagram. Um, Tell your friends, friends, if every person in the city found five, right? Every person listening found five people to tell that we can do criminal justice differently, mm-hmm. we can win this election. And I, I know we're on the right track and right. I'm really excited about it.
0: And I wanna just add this in for the city of Nashville because I do believe like like I know a lot of people get caught up in like judicial like not judicial excuse me, the federal mm-hmm. level elections like but these these local elections to me <laughs> Yeah. Are, are more important and, and affect us more directly yes. in our everyday lives right yeah. and you can reach out and touch like our local officials here and, and, and see them in the grocery store um, X y and z and so you can you know you can you can tell them your discernments about whatever they're doing they're not doing um but I say that to say eight years ago only 25,000 people for the whole judicial election showed up to vote right and we're talking about some, some of the most powerful decision makers <laughs> in our city when it comes to the criminal legal system, right? Let's just, just put that out there. And so I encourage everybody, you know, to, to get out there, vote, find somebody to vote for because this 25,000 out of 400, almost 500,000 eligible voters is crazy. And so we have to show up and support and determine what our, you know, criminal legal system will or will not be in the next, you know, almost 10 years. So, Danielle, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your availability to be here doing your campaign run. And uh, thank you.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure.
0: Thank you. And so people, get out there, vote. Go tune in more. Go vote. Go go do your research. (laughs) Go download that policy book. And now we have everything on record to hold uh, Danielle accountable, you know, if elected DA in May. And then we can play all this back and say, hey, Danielle, you said this, 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 and this. And then there you go. Let's but do it. but but also, eight years. It's like, mm-hmm. so it ain't like it's four. It's not like it's two. Like, eight years. Right. So like, ah, you know, you got to. be gotta get it right we gotta get it right we gotta get it right for the sake of our families for the sake of our future for the
1: sake of our city we have to get this right right right. right. now yeah we have to get
0: it right for sure again danielle thank you thank you all right till next time